This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast, where we are here to become better habitat managers. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees. With me tonight is Chad Thalen. He's another local Michigan gentleman from Stony Creek Outdoor Properties and a longtime habitat guru. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody tonight for coming on, for listening. Really appreciate your support. Um, We're going to get right into this podcast. We have almost two hours of information regarding state and federal programs, habitat programs, that uh, landowners can take advantage of. We are going to get into the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP. We are also going to get into biggest hurdles and questions that landowners may have while deciding if they want to get into a program like this. Different incentives available for landowners, uh, different implementations. There, there are a ton of different projects here. It doesn't just have to be CRP. It can be wetland restoration, stream management, invasive species, endangered species, etc. Also, how to find a certain representative in your area to help guide you through this type of project, whether it's a farm service person, a NRCS member, or even a farm bill biologist. We go into how to find each one of those in your area to answer any of your questions. And lastly, the Early Successional Habitat Challenge. This is going to be put on by a group of the habitat gurus out there, and we'd like to tell you a lot more about it. Stay tuned, guys. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast with Chad Thalen from Stony Creek Outdoor Property. 
Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have my friend Chad Thalen from Michigan on the line. How you doing tonight, Chad? Hey, good, Jared. Thanks for having me. No, thank you, man. I appreciate you spending the time to come on with us. It's always good uh, talking to another Habitat guru like yourself. And and we have a very interesting uh, podcast tonight. I think this one's going to blow blow some minds out there. What do you think? Yeah, we got a lot to get through, and hopefully uh, <laughs> we don't muddy the waters or make people more confused about Habitat. All right. Well, let's start off like we normally do, Chad. Let's hear about who you are, where, you, where you're from. I know you manage um, Stony Creek Outdoor Properties here in Michigan, and I know you are a QDMA branch leader. Is that correct? Yes, I am. Yep. Um, yeah, so I own and operate Stony Creek Outdoor Properties. Um, I've been at that since, um, and of course, right now my daughter just comes in and give me a hug. <laughs> Make sure you um, give her a hug. Yes, I did. Um, yeah, so I started um, Stony Creek um, back in the early 2000s. Um, we actually started off as um, a game bird hunting preserve. So I raised uh, a pheasants and had a put and take. Uh, game farm. Wow, I did um, not know that. Yeah, and um, we uh, kind of took off from there, um, and it slowly developed. It's an interesting uh, start, I guess, with, uh, you know, as I created habitat on our property to hold these birds, um, and then had um, hunters come out and chase these birds around, they started commenting on the habitat and the quality of the animals and wildlife that we were seeing, you know, we jumped deer and turkeys and pheasants and all kinds of other wildlife in this habitat um, that I had created for these birds. And quite a few of the hunters started asking, you know, if I could help them uh, with this habitat. And um, it really just kind of snowballed from there. Um, It's developed now into a full-time job. It was just a part-time gig back then. And it's, um, it's now a full-time job between that and doing uh, licensed real estate work here in Michigan. It's um, just kind of become a, a beast of its own. But uh, I really got started, you know, with wanting to work in the land. I, was, uh, I grew up on a several hundred-acre farm. Um, we were raising, oh, one to 2,000 head of pigs uh, every year. Um, wow. my, yeah, my dad started um, – implementing conservation practices on our farm back in the mid-80s. In fact, he he won awards back in the 1980s from the conservation district for um, his uh, use of no-till practices and uh, conservation practices for uh, soil erosion. Um, So I started helping him plant, you know, grass waterways and um, that was pretty much the conservation practice back then. You know, I was 10 years old, um, helping to stop uh, soil erosion on our farm in Clinton County. And um, that's, I, I'm kind of attributing that to that's where I kind of got my start into really paying attention to what's going on in the land. And Yeah. And so, uh, you know, fast forward 15 years or so and, um, you know, starting my own business and, um, now it's, you know, hundreds of acres a year that we're uh, managing and planting and 
um, been a lot of fun, met a lot of great people. Okay, and so you grew up in Michigan, you had a family farm, and you got started with a soil erosion, and your dad was into the, the no-till, is that correct? Yeah, correct. That's that's pretty interesting. I didn't know, uh, I mean, I assume no-till was always a, a great thing and, and a big thing, but I haven't been hearing about it more and more until recently, but maybe that's because I haven't been into Habitat more and more until recently, but it's always been a, a big thing, huh? I, I feel like I just haven't seen it around as much. Yeah, well, you know, the, probably the no-till you're referring to, you know, is in the food plot world, and, and this no-till practice was, you know, planting uh, corn and soybeans and wheat, you know, um, um, those types of crops. Like you a know, no-till the, drill? Correct. Into like a, a cover crop that was planted before that, or? Um, well, it could be just, uh, you know, it was it was corn the year before, and uh, we harvested it in the fall, and uh, we didn't do any fall tillage. Ah. Um, you know, no chisel plowing or anything like that. Um, you just let the fodder from uh, the fall uh, lay across the, you know, throughout the winter, and then in the springtime, you. Um, you know, just drilled directly into that uh, okay. corn stubble, you know, a new soybean crop. So there's, oh, you know, cool. a specific rotation, um, crop rotation that most farmers use. Um, but, yeah, so we um, implemented those practices, you know, for like, again, for soil erosion. Soil erosion, you know, from wind, water, yep. and, and whatever else. But, yep. Um, yep. Okay, and you said you were – You've moved into planting things on properties now as a full-time gig in part with, with the real estate from Stony Creek. Now, what are you planting for wildlife, and, and where do you plant it? I, I know I've started hearing of you doing things on on both private and some state ground, uh, which caught my attention a couple of years ago. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. So, um when I started the business, it was uh, it was mainly food plot work. Um, you know, in the early 2000s, um, that's a lot of people were really getting into food plots, and really nobody had the equipment. Um, a lot of landowners, say from the Detroit, um, Lansing, Flint, Grand Rapids areas, owned properties up north, and uh, you know wanted food sources planted for wildlife in. Uh, you know, most of those guys didn't have the equipment, didn't have the knowledge. Um, so back then, you know, hundred, almost 100% of my business was all running all over northern Michigan, um, planting food plots, um, and also winning uh, quite a few contracts with the uh, state of Michigan to plant food plots on public lands. Um, where maybe on public land along, around Houghton Lake, um Higgins Lake area, you know, they do uh, a timber harvest uh, on these public lands, and in certain areas they would maybe clear cut instead of doing a uh, timber thinning. Uh, in some areas they would do a complete clear cut, and then they'd clear the stumps, and then we'd come in behind them and, and plant those areas to, to food sources for, um, oh, goodness, you know, I've seen deer and, and bear and, and grouse and turkey um, you know, using these food plots um, that we've created up up in that area, and uh, and then you know, 
then CRP, you know, I was getting to know, learn more about government programs and government funded programs. And, um, so I started really focusing on, um, helping landowners, private landowners find money, uh, you know, to implement some conservation practices that then also met their needs for wildlife uh, cover and food. Um, and so it kind of transitioned away from doing much food plot work, um, unless it's uh, within that plan of planting somebody's property into a conservation reserve program, then we'll plant that food plot for them. But um, kind of gotten away from the, uh, you know, plant one acre here in Kent County and drive an hour and a half and plant an acre in Macosta County and yeah. drive, drive another hour and a half and plant an acre. Um, that's hard on equipment and, and stuff. So um, now fortunately I've been able to um, do a lot of private land work. That's pretty much all government funded projects, whether it be um, native prairie grass plantings, um, tree plantings, uh, wetland reconstruction, um, those are kind of the three big things that uh, we do now is prairie grass plantings, tree plantings, and wetland construction. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, you went from one end of it to, to the other, I'd say, which is it's pretty cool. How did you get selected or become credible, I guess, to the state or gov- federal government to be able to be the one to to put these programs in and implement them? Oh, I guess it's just been trust over the years, I think. Um, okay. You know, you have to have um, – uh, there's only, I believe, one license, you know, and that would be a herbicide applicator's license. Um, uh, you know, that to, to apply herbicides, you know, and prepare the ground for planting. Um, but other than that, you know, there really isn't anything to be licensed in. Um, having the equipment. Um, to do it, being able to be mobile and move around the state is huge. Um, there are not many guys in this uh, line of work. Um, there's realistically probably only a few of us left and maybe only a couple of us that really tr- are set up to travel around the state. You know, I have a, I have a semi with a 30-foot trailer that I can get my tractor and, and no-till drill and all the other goodies on and um, being able to move from job to job to job. And um, I volunteer a lot with Pheasants Forever and um, uh, Quality Deer Management Association, like you mentioned, and attend and get invited to a lot of meetings to help um, plan and develop some of these uh, programs that get implemented um, through uh, the Natural Resource Conservation Service or the USDA. Um, so I think it's, it's you know, it's been a trust thing and, um, you know, they see that we do a good job and have a lot of successful plantings and and so we get, uh, you know, word of mouth is a good thing and so we <laughs> continually, you know, I, I don't um, I don't really advertise anymore, have to advertise, mostly everything all comes from word of mouth. So yeah. I guess that's a um, something to be proud of, I guess. That's the best form uh, you can get right there, buddy. That's that's right. awesome. And you're, I've seen on Facebook your equipment. You have some fairly large equipment, don't you? I mean, I'm sure. Uh, that, and, and how yeah. how large are these these things that you're putting in on on public ground, for instance? Um, 
just just as a as an example. Um, yeah, there's some been some pretty large projects on public land that you know. And I know your listeners are from all over, but, uh, you know, specifically here in Michigan, um, our Department of Natural Resources is, is partnering with nonprofit groups like Pheasants Forever and Ducks Unlimited, National Wild Turkey Federation, and um, really putting an emphasis on restoring native vegetation. Um, and so there's been some large chunks of land that have been converted from, you know, old cool season pasture type um, lands that, you know, really aren't helping a whole lot of wildlife and we're converting them into native warm season grasses and forbs. Um, and so some of these projects have been, you know, 20, 30, up to, you know, 100 acres. And then um, wow, maybe, so, you know, and over the years, of, you know, there's been several hundred acres within maybe a couple mile radius, you know, that's been converted and, and, um, you know, we're starting to see the effects of um, some wild pheasants coming back in these areas, like up in the Thumb um, and um, down in southern Michigan at some of the uh, state game areas. There's, Yeah, there's been uh, an increase in the, some of the wild pheasants coming back. So, um, you know, the proof's in the pudding if, if hunters are getting out there and, and hunting small game, you know, in these lands and in the uh, – showing their successes on social media and stuff like that. That's a good testament to, you know, the work that's being done. And, um, yeah, as far as the equipment goes, you know, it's it's as big as I can get to be able to get on a trailer and be able to move it around legally uh, across <laughs> the state. And so, um, you know, I run a 130-horse John Deere tractor with a 10-foot Great Plains no-till drill. Wow. Uh, behind that and uh, – you know, that's my the most expensive. You know, I guess I've made um, quite a big uh, monetary investment in all this equipment. And um, so, yeah, we, we, we you know, in a decent-sized field, we can, we can knock out, you know, four to eight acres an hour with that type of equipment, you know, which isn't – doesn't sound like a lot when you drive around the state or drive around the Midwest and you see these, you know, 300-horse tractors pulling – um, you know, 32 row corn planters and, <laughs> you know, covering a hundred acres an hour. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But considering I have a lawn tractor and an ATV, you have some pretty big equipment. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, all, it's relative, all relative, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was just looking at your, um, oh, this afternoon I was looking at your, uh, your podcast uh, Facebook page and one of the pictures showed the, you know the color packer and the ATV and the with the drag on the front racks of the ATV and um, you know that's some of the most fun habitat work right there just working with small equipment and yeah um, it can get pretty boring you know ten foot at a time going across a hundred acre field but um, um, you know those large fields are great for uh, you know it takes a certain amount of acreage size um, to to restore. Uh, you know, maybe a native pheasant population. Um, right. You know, one acre, two acres, you know, can can hold some rabbits and, um, you know, deer and, and stuff, but you're, you're not going to really hold any pheasants um, unless your neighbor's got 50 acres. And um, <laughs> right. so, you know, I, I've, I've got a great example of where I, I, I live now just outside of St. John's. You know, it was 
Um, I planted a couple properties. Um, uh, before we actually bought our house and moved in here, I was planting uh, two of my now neighbors' properties in the CRP. And um, I remember going across the field in a tractor and um, um, looking across the uh, the field and, and actually looking at the house that we now live in and thinking, man, when this uh, you know grass gets mature, I was planting about 25 acres for each landowner, so 50 acres um, of native warm season grasses, and then a couple of the other neighbors just had some early successional habitat of maybe three to five acres here and there. And I remember looking at my house now, which obviously we weren't in, going, man, that would be a cool place to live in a few years when this grass gets uh, up and going. And and sure enough, if that house didn't come up for sale, <laughs> no and, way. Uh, Yep, and so we ended up buying the house right next to where I planted all this habitat, and now I can, um, you know, there's so many wild pheasants running around out here. It's it's pretty impressive. Um, in the springtime, you know, when when the males are out running around, you'll it's not uncommon for every five minutes to hear a cackle. Really? You know, in May or so, and that's awesome. So, um, yeah, you know, and that's, you know, a thing that's great about the QDMA and now Pheasants Forever, you know, getting involved with, you know, with these neighborhood co-ops, um, whether they be deer co-ops or uh, or pheasant co-ops. It's, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have the deer and the pheasants and the turkeys in my backyard if, if my neighbors weren't doing some of these conservation practices. Um and so I really benefit from what the neighbors are doing. And so, you know, I've pretty much focused, you know, we're only here on 10 acres, but I've taken my, uh, the back seven acres, which is all tillable. I've, I've now, I'm turning that into uh, just all food sources because um, these two other properties don't, uh, you know, other than native forbs that are naturally growing, they don't, there's not any food plots or anything out there. So, um, I'm focusing on providing them, you know, winter food uh, for the birds and um, early successional habitat. And and so, you know, we're all really, we're reaping the benefits of what we're all doing together. No, that's just another, it's just speaks to the testament of, of cooperatives. I mean, my property, or when I was looking, I was only going to buy inside of a co-op. There's just the only requirement or one of the only requirements I had and, I'm I'm in one. I'm far. I'm kind of one of the outliers with you know a few of our local properties, my neighbors or whatnot. But just having good neighbors slash being in a co-op really helps out uh, people like you and me with smaller properties in a place like like Michigan, for instance. Sure, that's just it's super important. Um, Correct. But now let's get to the the meat and potatoes here. I know that. The object of this podcast was to talk about state and federal wildlife habitat projects. What can we as landowners be doing? How can we find these projects? How can we apply for the funds, etc.? So that's what I want to get into, and I know you are the guy to talk to about this stuff. So where should yeah. we start, Chad? Yeah, so, you know, there's, um, 
depending on what state you're in, uh, you know, there's uh, going to be several different resources. Um, our state of Michigan, which a lot of people don't know, but our our Department of Natural Resources actually has a private lands um, uh, division where um, in a lot of a lot of times they'll have grant money uh, to help uh, private landowners with their habitat work. Uh, that's a small fraction of you know what I do, um, and it's a small fraction of money in the overall scale of what kind of money is available to landowners through other programs, but. Um, I bet if you probably asked nine, nine, uh, if you asked ten people, nine people would say they never knew that, uh, you know, their Department of Natural Resources may have even had a, a private lands office that, you know, might have some money available for maybe some of the actual work, but for sure, you know, some help with some consulting, um, what to plant. Um, but yeah, you can look at your, uh, your state DNR office, um, you can look at the Natural Resource Conservation Service. You can look at um, the Farm Service Agency. You can look at the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, and their partners for Fish and Wildlife Program. Um, so there's there's lots of ways to go. It kind of depends on what your goals are. Um, and you got to just basically start somewhere and hope that you end up getting directed to the right path uh, or get down the right path and and end up in the right program for you. Um, so there, so are, there are a lot of different agencies and, and programs to look into, right? And there's we're probably going to have to narrow it down for tonight's discussion because, I mean, there's, there's just so many people could – to could go look and research, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, and that's um, nice thing here about the podcast. You know, guys can hit pause here and and um, look up some things with us online, or um, sure, you know, they can go to your they can go to your show notes. Um, but yeah. if we can di- if we can direct people here um, to a site that's farmers.gov, pretty simple, farmers.gov. Okay, um, so everybody pause and go to the website. <laughs> Yeah, yep, yep. Um, or we'll just BS here for a minute and let, if guys are on the computer or whatever, uh, they can dig it up. But, um, yeah, there isn't, this farmers.gov is probably going to be your your best place to start. Um, it's going to have the most um, programs that will be financially funded that you can get into. Um Obviously, there's going to be stipulations to get into it, um, eligibility requirements, eligibility counties. Um, sure. Uh, but um, but this, this site will get you to the programs that have the most financial incentives. Okay, that sounds like a great place to start. Yeah, so I guess let's take a tour, huh? Can we get on? You're on farmers.gov? I, I am. I'm on it. I, uh, I have it pulled up here. I'm seeing some... Pictures of some onions and let's roll. Hopefully, some of our listeners will will pull this up yeah. as well. So, where do we so start? On that the bar across the top there. If you can hit the conserve button, conserve. Got it. Nice. Okay, and so uh, quick little 
you know, a few paragraphs there to discuss um, um, what it is and who they're helping. Uh, but it'll get much deeper um, as you click on some of these tabs here. Um, um, and for the people that aren't going to, you know, be able to be on this computer and are sitting here, you know, bored and wondering why in the heck we're doing this, um, <laughs> yeah, we'll try to describe this, too, as, as best we can. But, um, you know, so we got three tabs to look at here in this conserve um, page. And so it's managing your natural resources, getting technical assistance, or um, and that was a great time for my Internet to go down. Um, Explore financial assistance options was the third yep. one. Yep, and that's that's where I want us to go now. Okay, exploring financial assistance options now. Wow, all kinds of stuff comes up. Yep, you get all these little tabs. Um, and probably the one that most people have heard of is the Conservation Reserve Program. And that's um, CRP. When we, re when we re uh, refer to CRP, that's what it is, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, a lot of people, I'll see comments and um, people just referring to a field that's not being farmed, you know, as as CRP. Um, and so, um, you know, that's, that's some misinformation there. It's, um, you know, uh, they may be looking at a field that's in CRP, but I know when I've, I've seen people point to a field and say, you know, that's CRP, a lot of times it's, you know, when they're talking about an overgrown field with a lot of trees growing in it and stuff, you know, that's that's more than likely not a field that's in a conservation reserve program. Um, Is there a quick telltale sign that you may be looking at one or the other? You know, if you see a if you see a field that's uh, consistent across, say that twenty acres, then it, the grasses, you know, kind of look like the um, you know the beginning. Uh, credits to Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> uh, you know the, the the grass is blowing in the wind, and some uh, uh, some black eyed Susan or some purple prairie coneflower. Uh, you know flowers dotted throughout it. Um, you know you're probably you're looking. There's most um, fields that are in CRP uh, don't have a tree component. Okay. At least if if they do, it's not. You know, I see a field with a lot of trees in it and a lot of grass. I'm looking at, I'm calling it an early successional um, habitat. That's yep. what it, it looks like to me. But uh, something that's true in, in CRP, it's been something that's been planted to um, native warm season grasses and forbs. That's what most people would would know about. Now, you know, within the CRP, there's lots of, you know, there's filter strip programs to, just to help with soil erosion, there's, you know, um, linear corridors of habitat that might not be things that people are used to be seeing. But so I think when a lot of people, um, hopefully when they see CRP, uh, uh, you know, it's they see, they're seeing a nice field of, of, of tall grasses and flowers um, throughout it. Um, that's and that's what we plant hundreds of acres of ye a year into. Uh, okay. Is that those mixtures? Um, and it's pretty. It's typical to be you know five grasses, which would be you know switchgrass, Indian grass, big blue stem, little blue stem, Canada wild rye, 
um, you know, June grass, um, and there's a lot of others too. But and then and then full of forbs, you know, your flowers and stuff. Um, that's 99% of the the work that we're doing now is is those types of fields. Um, okay, well, thank you for that. So now we're on the conservation reserve program page. What next? Yeah, so, and then now that you see that you're within that, you've got all kinds of related topics on the left-hand side. Um, there's a tab there, um, the the new to CRP. Um, yep. You know, there's a, a video for that. Um, you go down a little farther and you see CRP initiatives, and then so now these are going to be um, – programs that are within CRP. Okay. Um, and so if you scroll, you know, and then there's all those highlighted, Bottomland Hardwoods Initiative, Honeybee Habitat Initiative, Pollinator Habitat Initiative, and then State Acres for Wildlife Enhancement Initiative, um, SAFE. Um, that's, that program there is, is what I've been um has been most of our work over the last four or five years on, on the state uh, ground. Um, no, private. No, oh, this, really? This, okay. This this is all private land um, wow. initiatives here. This is all for private landowners to uh, to try and roll their properties in. Yeah, this is nothing on public lands. Okay. And that's that's yeah, that's a lot of the confusion and where guys can get confused about, well, you know, what's going on here and what's going on there and is it all the same, is it different? And um, so, no, these, what we're talking about here in this USDA um, farmers.gov site is this is all private land eligible initiatives for wildlife habitat. Okay, great. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. If no, we, no. That was I'm I'm very new to all this, so I uh, I'm learning a ton, and it's very cool that like you said, uh, pollinator, um, duck habitat. Looks like there's a longleaf pine, highly erodible land initiative, um, non floodplain and Playa Lakes wetland initiative. Not familiar with that. Or there's a floodplain wetland initiative. There's what 12 of them here at least so yeah and you know for your listeners this is uh, you know this is not just con- you know, inclusive to michigan um this is you know usda site so this is programs throughout the united states gotcha and so you know this longleaf pine initiative would be you know something for the southern states um what we work on here a lot in Michigan is this pollinator habitat initiative and then the SAFE, the State Acres for Wildlife Enhancement. Okay. And so to get even more confusing, once you get in the <laughs> safe, <laughs> SAFE initiative. You want me to click you know, on that? Sure. Okay. You know, then there's there's many different things you can do within that. It's habitat restoration, it's carbon sequestration, and then water quality enhancement. Wow. Um, and then you can see there the affiliated practices, buffers, wetlands, trees, grasses, longleaf pine. And so, you know, it takes a week and a half to uh, go through <laughs> this. And then, um, you know, you can see some of the financial benefits here. Um, 
Well, you know, the biggest thing before you get too deep into a lot of this is just contacting your um, your local conservation district. Um, usually, um, like here in Michigan, uh, within the same building will be two different offices. One is the Farm Service Agency, and the other one would be the Natural Resource Conservation Service. Um, they're typically all with, under the same roof, um, two different offices in the, in the building. Um, and those two um, uh, offices, you know, give you both technical and financial assistance. So usually the FSA Farm Service Agency provides the financial assistance and, and getting you um, finding out if you're eligible or not. They'll run you through a series of questions. Um, and then uh, if you if you make it through uh, an enrollment period, then you'll uh, uh, let's see the um, a field technician um, typically from the NRCS then would come out and do a site visit on your property. Okay, um, so pause right there, Chad, if you don't mind. Um, we're kind of getting into how to find and apply. For, for some of these programs, I believe. So first, the Farmers.gov website is the national website, and like we mentioned, there are a ton of different uh, initiatives you can get into on there. And you're saying once you find one you might be interested in or, or once you maybe commit that, that you want to look into this, you then contact your, your state FSA or NRCS. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, and I was going to direct um, people to this um, link that you know you can find your local office. Oh, well, then I'll um, shut up and let you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, so, you know, within this website here, you know, once if, if, if you're interested enough, you know, once you've read through some of these tabs, um, um, you can, um, uh, at the bottom of this page, it says find your local service center. And then so you can select your state, and then you can go in and select your, um, you know, your your county, and then get in touch with your proper office. And then they start running you through the questions of, you know, whether or not you're even eligible. And, um, you know, through my business, that's I do a lot of that middle ground work. Um, um, I'll kind of try to weed out. You know, people before they even make the phone call and try to help see if they, because I know most of the questions that are going to get asked and some of the biggest um, hurdles to get through uh, to get a property qualified for these programs. And then, um, so, you know, I provide that as a service, um, you know, to help steer people in the right direction, get them into the right program. Um, no, that's, you know, uh, that's great information. What are some of those questions and or hurdles? Are there Maybe a couple top three we could talk about real quick. Um, yeah, a lot of it is um, having, um, you, you know, your your land needs to have been uh, uh, have a cropping history. Um, the kind, of, you know, one of the goals of these programs is to um, help conserve land that is highly erodible, um, highly susceptible to you know wind. And water damage, or uh, you know, types of erosion. Um, and so, 
uh, you know, they, they want to convert tillable lands um, into some conservation practices to help conserve that soil. So, yeah, most of the focus um, is is on tillable acreage. You know, so if you if you own a 40 acre parcel and it's all woods, well, during that conversation, I can steer you away from, uh, say, a CRP program and maybe direct you into a equip program that um, works with you know timber stand improvement. Um, wow, cool. And I believe there, there may be a program or so within CRP, too, that you know, would, would help you work with timber standard improvement. But, um, you know, or if you simply just don't have um, any of the tillable lands, you know, then I can help direct you to, say, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and their partners for Fish and Wildlife Program. You know, they don't require you to um, have any tillable farmlands. But let's go back to some of the, you know, the questions about or hurdles to jump over. Um, yeah, you, you need to have tillable farmland to work with. Um, a lot of times there's um, minimum acreage requirements. Um, say of you, you have to have at least 10 acres um, um, to be able to put into to the habitat. Um, you know, you need to own the property for um, at least one year. Um, and so that's, you know, with my real estate services that I provide, a lot of times, you know, I'll sell a guy a piece of ground and, you know, the, the first thing they want to do is they want to get it into eligible, you know, programs. And then they, you know, we got to slow them down and discuss, well, now it's great that you bought the land, but, you know, now you got to wait a year <laughs> before <laughs> you can get any help. And that, no, again, that's, that's just, a bad you thing. Know, no, it's, it takes, it lets people settle in. Yep. Get you get used to their property. Learn um, what the wildlife's doing. You know. Yeah. Um, and that's you know it's a big thing that I have to tell people is you know don't when you first own property you know don't get don't worry too much about what the deer are going to do or uh, you know or the turkeys because if you're going to do a lot of habitat work those deer movements and patterns and stuff are all going to change. Um, and so, but yeah, so that, that year of eligibility is a big thing. Um, but yes, it gives guys a time to, to sit back and kind of get a plan together and, um, you know, think through all the process. And, um, so, uh, yeah, some of the biggest hurdles are, you know, the acreage requirement, um, the cropping history, um, you know, it need to be, so there's a, there's a time period within the farm bill. Okay, so the Farm Bill has all the funding um, for these programs. And so the Farm Bill is for a period of time. And then um, within <laughs> that most recent time, uh, your your fields have to have been in a crop like corn or soybeans or wheat for four out of the six years during whatever time frame the Farm Bill is requiring. And I know this is where people's eyes start glazing over. And, yep, minor. Um, yeah, so let's not focus too much on that. But you have to have a cropping history. You've got to have tillable land. Um, most of the time you've got to have a minimum acreage um, to do this. Um, and then, you know, you've got to, got to uh, be willing to uh, put this into a contract that could, uh, you know, last at least 10 years and possibly up to 15 years, depending on, what you choose. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so there's, 
you know, there's a fact sheet, which um, a lot of times will be one of the first things that I want landowners to read. And so it talks about what the program is, uh, what the eligibility is, what counties, you know, you might be eligible for, some of the financial incentives. And so that fact sheet is usually one to three page document. And, um, you know, once they go through reading that, and then if they're still interested, you know, we get them in touch with the uh, the local conservation office, you know, if they haven't already talked to them. Um, probably, ha- you know, my business, you know, if we plant 500 acres a year, um, but 250 of those acres have come to me from, you know, a landowner who says, you know, I'm already enrolled, I'm already signed up, I just need you to get the seed and plant it. Okay. Um, then the other 250 acres a year are, you know, somebody that I would have met um, and help walk them through getting into a program. Um, and then, you know, a year or so down the road, you know, we're actually installing the practice. Very cool. Uh, Very cool. That's some great information. Um yeah, lots of lots of things are burning down here. Is that is that fact sheet something that you came up with, or is that was that part of um, the the website we covered, or what was that? Yeah, no, yep, that would be um, a lot of these you can find. That might um, be worth know, sharing too. Yeah, through navigating, you know, this website, um, but also, um, yeah, there's specific. Um, links that we can get in the show notes that would okay. direct people to some of these <clears throat> fact sheets. And, um, uh, you know, our Michigan Department of Natural Resources has done a good job with um, helping the USDA to create some of these fact sheets and, um, you know, uh, very good information. Um, give a uh, shout out to um, private lands biologist, uh, you know, Mike Parker from the Michigan DNR. Uh, he used to be with uh, Michigan Pheasants Forever as their uh, regional director. Um, and now he's with the DNR, but he's done a great job with streamlining a lot of this information and um, into a, you know, a one to three page document. And so, um, yeah, we can, we'll share some of that on, uh, on your show notes and um, try to clear up a little confusion because we might have a lot of people hitting the, pause button. <laughs> <laughs> no, sure. This is uh, information overload. I love it. Now, now, if you get past all those hurdles and I say, Chad, I, I'm approved, come plant, uh, what happens next? What? How long does this take to get installed? Um, and you, you get compensated for some of this program, uh, me being the landowner, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. Is that correct with every program as well? I don't want to ask too many questions in a row here, but... So how long does it take to get in, and then when do you start seeing some of the benefits financially and for the wildlife? Like, how long does it take to get established? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess when... um, These these programs a lot of times uh, have open enrollments, so the program's open all the time. You could walk into your county office and, um, you know, start the process of getting enrolled. Um, Other times programs maybe only have a three or four month uh, window opening. Excuse me. Um, And then they'll, 
So a lot of, you know, the administrative work is being done in the summer, in the fall, um, and then uh, technical guidance by um, the NRCS is being done by actually writing your plan of, you know, let's say we have a 20-acre field that you're going to put in CRP and you've declared that you'd like to put 10% of that 20-acre field into a food plot, uh, which you can do. Um, they'll help you with the design and layout of that. Um, so then usually I'll get um, I'll get the plan, you know, after the first of the year, kind of like now, early January through February, March. Um, I'll get the plan, and then um, I start um, writing proposals for the landowner, you know, describing what exactly we're going to do. Um, if it's just the planting, um, you know, some, some landowners will provide their own seed. You know, they'll buy their own seed, and they'll do the other prep work, like herbicide applications or, or disking and prepping the field, and then they just want me to come in, and I just show up, you know, put the seed in the ground, drill it in, and, you know, onto the next project. Most landowners have me take care of everything. You know, it's ordering the seed, uh, making sure the right seed blend is ordered, um, storing it here at, at my home, my pole barn, um, and managing managing the project as we get closer to spring. So we're watching for when you know the proper herbicide application should take place. Um, watching for when the the soil warms up enough to properly um, you know, proper timing for seed planting. Um, you know, with the way uh, the seed is very good right now, planting equipment is very good. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, I've had some projects that um, in 60 days, you know, some of these native warm season grasses have been four to six feet tall already. Um, that's if the summer was perfect. Um, we need moisture and hot weather um, to get this stuff established. Okay. Um, and I've also had times when we've had cool and dry or cool and too wet conditions at, um, in the summer, and it may only grow a foot that first year, and then may it, and I may only be two to three feet the second year. Um, I mean, so it's typical to to, to to tell landowners and you know, advise them that it could be up to three years before this stuff is fully established. And that's that's common, commonly known, you know, in the native warm season grass world that it can take that long. But I have, you know, more often than not, um, in, a, in a few months, I can, I can get a landowner, you know, three to four feet of growth that first year. And um, how long until the wildlife starts using it that you've seen? Oh boy! Does that um, depend on it, how tall it gets, or yeah, and it depends on what wildlife you're talking about. You know, are we talking about butterflies and bees and turtles and snakes, or are we talking about you know deer and pheasants and turkeys? Um, I don't know if there's a, a rough number you could throw out all the above for a couple numbers. <laughs> well, you know, anytime um, a field gets you know planted. Um, I guess there's always a rotational time of when wildlife is using a field, whether it's in soybeans or whether it's planted to native warm season grasses and forbs. Um, you know, at certain times of the year, certain forages, you know, are more um, 
a deer, you know, like ragweed almost all summer, you know, but then there's, there's certain specific times where, you know, they, they really like it or, you know, soybeans, they really like when they're first uh, germinated. And, uh, but it's in reference to these native warm season grass fields, I mean, I think, um, you know, you get, they're not going to use a bare field other than maybe to run across it. Um, right. But any, Anytime you start getting, you know, a foot of growth, um, you know, a foot a foot of growth can hide a fawn, yeah. um, you know, or it can hide um, a nest of turkeys. Um, but, uh, you know, when you get when you get that stuff at that three to six, seven foot level, you know, that's when it's going to really start start hiding deer and and uh, fawns, especially in the springtime, um, <clears throat> excuse me, turkeys and pheasants, um, butterflies and the bees, you know, you, those flowers are really going to take off that usually that first summer, almost under any condition. I mean, unless we have 60 to 75 days of drought, um, you know, then pretty much nothing's going to grow. But these forbs, uh, the, the, Purple prairie coneflower and the partridge pea and the black-eyed susans are gonna, um, you know, take off right away. So even with minimal rain, um, you can have a really nice uh, stand that in that first year and um, in immediate growth or immediate use, you know, by wildlife. No, that's that's awesome. And let me tell you what, walking through a CRP field at that time when all those flowers are in bloom is pretty pretty amazing sight. Yeah, so you've done, you've been able to to trudge through a CRP field. So I looked at a property for sale um, down in Hillsdale County a few years back, and it was uh, like a forty divided up into three or four fields, and it was all CRP, and all the flowers were in bloom, and it was just the prettiest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it was, you know, the bees are just humming everywhere, and and it was, uh, I'd never seen one in full bloom like that, it was amazing how many flowers there were. I mean, the whole field. Yeah. It was awesome. I've not seen one like that since or in a long time, but I, I'll never forget it. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, and, you know, these uh, – what's funny is you'll, I'll, I'll talk to a lot of landowners and they'll say, you know, I'm looking for something that I can plant, you know, in our backyard. We, we just – we bought a 40-acre parcel – um, it's got 10 acres of wood, 10 acres of woods, and we're building a house up front. And, you know, I'd like some habitat, but the wife, you know, she doesn't know what she wants. And, you know, the landowner will say, well, you know, I saw this picture you posted of this field that was just covered in colors. And it also, you know, it was full of grasses. And I showed it to my wife, and she was like, that's what I want, you know. <laughs> and so, um you know these programs that have the grasses and the and the flowers in them together. You know it's something for the wife to you know sit on the back deck or on the campfire and and look across this beautiful field of colors and um, it gives the husband you know a place for his habitat and his wildlife that you know he can walk out back and hunt and um. There you, you know, go. The, it's a win-win. I think that's the second podcast in a row we've talked about pleasing our wives at the same time. <laughs> Must be Valentine's Day coming up or something. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, there you go. Get your wife, uh, enroll your land in CRP <laughs> for Valentine's Day. 
No, that's that's awesome. You kind of covered, you know, what it takes to establish that, how long until you start seeing some of the benefits from the wildlife. Um, quite a, quite a bit goes into this. Um, it a, a lot actually, especially on your end managing all this. Now, now, what does the government pay out to somebody, and why are they paying out to go into CRP? Like, like what yeah. are, what are they paying for? You know, they're paying a landowner to you know, set their set their land idle. Um, to conserve it, you know, for, for soil quality, um, and soil, you know, soil erosion mainly. Um, and you know, the, the financial incentives are, uh, are, they try to mirror them as to what say your local farmer would pay you to plant row crops. So, um, you're going to get a per acre per year, payment for you know up to 10 years or unless you sign a 15-year contract there's there's 10 and 15-year contracts so every year you could get uh, you know i've got landowners getting a hundred dollars per acre to put their land in uh, you know 20 acre corn stubble field in the native warm season grasses and flowers i've got landowners i know of got close to 300 dollars an acre um and that's and so, per year Yep, it's per acre per year. Okay. Um, they're getting they're getting a check, you know, in um, late summer, early fall. Um, so there's an annual. It's called an annual soil rental rate payment. Um, and then it, you know, like the safe program that we talked about earlier, the state acres for wildlife enhancement. Um, that's been one of the that's had some of the best financial incentives for landowners that I've I've ever seen. Um, you get a one-time signing incentive payment. Um, so as soon as you enroll in the program, they're going to give you a um, – currently this program is paying $75 per acre for new enrollments. So you're going to get $75 per acre just to sign up into the program. Wow. And then um, the – I guess if you want to think about these in numbers, this there's basically three financial incentives. So we had the – we've discussed the oil, the annual soil rental rate. Then there was the one-time signing incentive. And then, you know, the cost share on establishing this habitat. So you've got, you've got seed. You might have ground preparation, which could be disking and color packing or burning. Um, you know, herbicide applications. Um, yeah, we have that. Of, yeah, those types of things are all um, cost-shared. And um, in this, this specific SAFE program, which is uh, the Southern Michigan Pheasant and Monarch Recovery, that has a 90% cost-share. So Really? The, yes, the government's going to, you know, cover, and that's that's paying me also to do the work. So, Let's say this whole thing um, costs you four hundred dollars per acre to uh, install. Uh, the government's going to reimburse you ninety percent of that. Oh wow! Uh, so you know, I tell my landowners and my clients that you know, kind of take that <clears throat> that sign up bonus that you get of seventy five dollars an acre. You roll that into the with the ninety percent cost share, and you're actually going to have money in your back in your pocket that first year um, yep. 
and not, that's not even including your your first year soil rental payments. And so, you know, some of these are really have really good incentives, and it's just you know, I've, so many of my clients said, you know, why wouldn't I do this? It's a no brainer. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me too. I mean, you're you're benefiting the habitat for the wildlife. Number one, um, you're, you're stopping the soil erosion and conserving that. You're you're making money or or being you know you're you're not losing money by taking your your field out of corn or soybean rotation. I mean, why wouldn't some people do this? Are there reasons people don't do this? I know the ten-year contract could be long. Uh, yeah. But are there any big reasons that we should be aware of that we haven't covered yet? You know, I don't. Some people just don't flat out just don't want government involvement in, you know, in, in what what they want to do with their <laughs> yeah. land. And, you know, and so yeah. in that case, there's always you can't, that. Yeah, you just can't. There's nothing you can really do to help them other than, you know, I can write them a management plan for them to, you know, finance it all themselves. Um, you know, and I have plenty of clients that do that. Um, we'll basically do the same thing we would have done under a, you know, conservation program, um, you know, maybe same seed mixtures, all that same layouts. There just is no government involvement. Um, um, you know, and but there, you know, there is some, you, you got to maintain these fields as they were planted initially. Okay. So you can't just sit back and let the field go crazy for the next 10 years and you do nothing with it. Um, okay, so walk us through what yeah. that what maintaining that looks like. Yeah, so once you have you know stopped a crop rotation, which is you know tillage and herbicide use, um, you're going to have you know native and non-native vegetations start to try creeping in. Um, if you get a good catch with your native grasses and, and forbs at planting time. You know, you won't have a lot of competition um, uh, from, you know, what's already in the seed bank. Um, so, you know, like I said, when you when you let that field sit without any uh, disking or herbicide use, which is going to be the case, you know, after you, you roll it into one of these programs and plant your grasses and forbs, you know, there's the opportunity for what we see a lot of is autumn olive, um, trees, shrubs growing in. We see a lot of cottonwood. Um, you know, cottonwood seeds blow around the air like crazy, you know, and they end up all over the place. Um, if you have them in your neighborhood, um, and they start popping up in these fields, uh, you can, you know, maple and, um, just a lot of, you know, so it's basically, it's the woody vegetation that you've got to keep an eye on and keep it out of those fields because it needs to be maintained as a grassland um, and, and it, you know, not being converted back to, you know, a woodlot. Um, so um, I've had landowners that have never had a, a problem with any of that stuff, um, and I've had others that have had to have some pretty um, intensive management done, you know, with, with bringing some friends over and, getting four or five guys out with, you know, little clippers um, and, um, you know, some backpack sprayers with some 
um, you know, herbicide in it to say, you know, what we'll do is, you know, you, you prune um, off an, a young autumn olive or a young cottonwood, and then you can dab it, dab the stem uh, with herbicide, and that'll kill that tree. Um, but there's, um, in the payments that you get, say, say you were offered by the government $145 an acre, um, you're, I think there's a, I'm pretty sure it's a $2, um, charge, or there's a, there's $2 in that 145 that you're, you're, you're actually being paid for yearly maintenance. So, like, they're wanting you to take $2 per acre per year and maybe set it aside for, um, you know, paying your friends to come over and help manage that oh, wow. grassland. Yeah. Or, you know, mowing. You can do spot mowing to control, um, uh, some of that stuff that comes in and, um, it's gotten, it's been pretty bad where, I mean, I've literally been hired by landowners who let their, uh, you know, it's in Southern Michigan, a lot of landowners, Hillsdale County, Lenaway County, Jackson County. Um, once you get in this program and you're at your 10 years or nine years, um, if the program's still available, they'll allow you to re-enroll. So now you can start another 10 year um, and a lot, some of these landowners I've worked with have been in their second or third 10-year enrollment. Wow. Well, you know, the, these properties weren't inspected properly. They weren't looked over properly by landowners or even, you know, the government technicians, and they were reverting back to a woods. Um, and I've literally spent weeks on a bulldozer um, pushing and ripping out you know, 20-year-old autumn olive Holy cow. bushes or, you know, 12-year-old cherry trees and um, small woodlots of cottonwood trees that have just, you know, they weren't maintained properly, and, and the landowner had to, you know, foot that bill, uh, you know, and running a bulldozer for a, a week, you know, it's not cheap. So, you know, the incentive is there, and there's – you know, there's more direction now, I think, than, than 10, 20 years ago as far as public landowners keep an eye on the property and keep it in compliance. You know, if the compliance is the big word. If you get out of compliance, you're going to be held responsible to get that field back into compliance. Um, and if you don't, you don't get paid? Yep, yep. And they can actually kick you out of the program and um, send you a bill for everything it costs to put that land into it um, and some, if not all, of the cost share that you have received over the past, you know, maybe 10 to 20 years. Wow. So, Yikes. you know, <laughs> those are, yeah, yeah. So, and so, you know, not that shouldn't scare people of getting into these programs because it's those situations are very rare. And um, I think all those lands have been cleaned up now. It's been a couple of years since I've actually, you know, had to run across. It was pretty, um, it, it was quite often I was in uh, Hillsdale, Lenaway, Jackson County, you know, clearing these fields and trying to get them back into compliance. So, you know, does a landowner pay me $5,000, you know, to clear the field with the bulldozer, or does he have to pay the government back, you know, $50,000? So, um, yeah, that's a good point. But it, it's rare now. Um, it seems to be that everybody's, you know, kind of up to speed. They're they're 
they're taking care of things. The, you know, the program technicians at the government offices are doing a better job at, um, you know, helping landowners stay in compliance before they could potentially get in a bad situation. Now, what about prescribed fire? Would that take care of that, that, uh, that, that woody browse coming up, the cottonwoods or the autumn olive or anything like that? Or are you allowed to even do that? Yeah, there's certain times of the year that they'll let you um, yep, use fire. And, in fact, uh, you know, usually uh, it's called um, mid-contract maintenance or mid-contract management. Um, usually halfway through your uh, program, you know, if you're in a 10-year, um, they're going to require you to do some form of soil disturbance. And so there's three options. They so if you can think about the the cycle of a, a field um, in the first couple of years, up to three years, you know these these grasses that are growing, you know they're bunch grasses, so that their 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 root systems keep getting bigger and bigger every year. Um, underground, which obviously means that above ground, they're taking up more and more room on um, the surface. And so as these grasses mature, they start filling in, um, you know, touching each other, bumping into each other, creating barriers. So in the first few years, if you can picture that you've got, you know, 75% of uh, the ground is, is covered in some sort of grass or form. Um, but there's still room. What you want, you want room for chicks and fawns, poults, um, you know, ducklings, whatever you want to call them, the little creatures in the springtime, you want to have room for them to escape predators um, and just mill around and, and you know, yep. grub, for, grub for bugs and forage and that sort of thing. Well, eventually, um, you know, these, these fields get too dense and the wild, you'll see a, a pretty big decrease in the wildlife use. So then uh, that's when you come in with either fire or herbicide or disking, and you're setting back that growth. So you'd like at year Perfect. four, yeah, year four or five, you're trying to set the field back to like year one or two. And, uh, um, yeah, and maintain that, that spatialness that can allow, you know, birds and fawns to be able to move around easily without getting, you know, nabbed by a fox or a coyote. Yep, yep. I think we talked about that a little bit with uh, Jim Strader in our pheasant episode. He was talking about how the they can get too choked out and the, the chicks have nowhere to go, and it mm-hmm. gives them more room down there, so that makes perfect sense. And burning seems easier than treating every autumn olive uh stump with an herbicide, but, I mean, whatever it takes to get it done, right, to, to manage it or, and maintain it. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes, you know, burning sometimes doesn't do it. You know, if you don't okay. get it hot, you know, if you don't, if your fire isn't hot enough, you know, if the conditions weren't conducive to having a hot fire or the, or the fire goes through the field too quickly, um, it may not be enough to kill some of those trees. Great point. Um, so at that, you know, then you it's just a matter of doing the prescription. One of the three prescribed um, 
things, the disking, the spraying, or the burning, and then just watching and maintaining the property after that. You know, see, did the tree re-sprout? You know, if you did a burn in March, is the tree re-sprouting and budding, you know, in April? Um, And that's a good time. You know, after a burn, burn is usually my favorite. Um, Disking, you know, can make the field very rough unless you disc it five or six times and get it back to being smooth. Um, sometimes herbicides don't, you know, can't maybe don't do a whole lot uh, to set the grasses back. Um, so burning, burning's great. Disking is probably second. Um, but then, um, you know, after burning, you can really get a good visual look across your field and see, what kind of, you know, vegetation is out there that shouldn't be there because about the only thing you're going to see standing, you know, is woody vegetation. Yeah, uh, no, I like that. I think we really covered a lot of the CRP and initial programs that, that people can get into. Um, anything else on the CRP before we maybe move a little forward? Um, no, I think that's enough to put you know, 99% of the people to sleep. So, yeah. No, I just, I'm reading some of our Facebook questions from earlier. And Eric, our buddy Eric uh, from New York asked about what other programs are available. I know there were a lot of programs listed on there. Are there one or two that maybe you'd want to mention that maybe guys from the the hills of New York would maybe focus on more so than, and CRP, are there any that come to mind real quick, or should he just go to the website and explore? Well, uh, no, there's, you know, I, I kind of use for my clients, there's, there's there's two places I go. I go to the, the farmers.gov site and all those programs, and then the other main one is um, I like to work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, they have a, a program called Partners for Fish and Wildlife. Um and, you know, that one is a lot, they have a lot less money to work with, unfortunately. Um, but they, you know, they don't require, um, they don't have as many eligibility requirements, you know, to get enrolled. Um, uh, you know, like they don't require a cropping history and they don't require you to have tillable lands. Um, so, you know, they may help you um, oh, restore an old wetland on your property and then, you know, help you plant three or four acres of native warm season grasses on the hill up above that wetland. Um, I really like to use them, you know, when I don't have, um, you know, when the landowner just doesn't have any other options for CRP, um, this Partners for Fish and Wildlife program, you know, is, is really good. And I say, you know, the biggest drawback is that they just don't have as much funding. Okay. But, um, you know, here in, um, you know, in Lansing, you know, there's four to five uh, private lands biologists. And um, you call there and, we'll, you know, we'll get a link there on your show notes, too. And um, but uh, they're great people to work with. I have a lot of fun working with those guys and, and bouncing around the state doing projects for them. But, um, you know, you know, their their first um, their fact sheet. Uh, you know, the first couple sentences are stewardship, partnership, fish and wildlife, future generations. 
Um, and that, in a nutshell, is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program. I like that. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, if you think about a lot of this work, we're hopefully doing things, you know, to benefit not only us immediately, but hopefully our sons and grandsons and daughters and granddaughters and, you know, leaving, leaving the land better than we have it now. And so... Um, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, you know, if you can take that approach, you know, and think out into the future and, um, you know, a lot of things I'm doing now on my property, you know, we own two different properties. We have a small, small property we live on and, and, uh, we still have our family farm. It's in its uh, fourth generation. Um, you know, we're, we're about to embark on a small, uh, you know, timber stand improvement project and, you know, harvesting some, some timber and, um, you know, we could have took more. Uh, we could have took more walnut. We could have took more hard maple. But uh, you know, there'll be something there uh, for you know my my kids and my brothers and sisters' kids um, to enjoy down the road. And so, you know, if you can think about that stuff and and try to help conserve, you know, some of these species that are in danger. Um, and man, when you like you walked across those fields and. You know, you got you probably came out of that field covered in bugs and and all kinds of debris. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, definitely. And uh, probably stepped on a snake you didn't know about, and, and maybe uh, kicked uh, it, kicked kicked a turtle that you didn't uh, <laughs> see was there. But um, yeah. So anyway, getting back to the partners program of fish and wildlife service, you know, that's probably my that's my second favorite place to go when. Um, when trying to help get, you know, landowners some, some cost sharing help. Yeah, it looks like, uh, this, this document that you and I discussed beforehand, it looks like they, they have a few different subjects here wetland restoration, grassland projects, stream improvements, habitat for endangered species. So it's not just CRP, it's, it's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Yep. Yeah, they really, you know, they, they, you know, and they get some grant money, you know, for for working with, you know, specific species too. So, um, you know, there's areas of southern Michigan, um, you know, where they're they're looking at, uh, and of course, the name of the species is uh, slipped my mind right now. But you know, if if you're in this corridor where um, they're trying to get the species back and recovered, um, you know, there's there's quite a bit of money available. And so, you know, it's a lot of the stuff can be regional. Um, you know, we talked a little bit before the podcast here about that program around Kent County, you know, in western uh, Michigan. Um, yeah, that's kind of a hot topic right now. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so, you know, that's, that's the thing to encourage people to call, you know, call me or call your conservation district. Um, there's always little programs popping up here and there that, um, you know, have sometimes millions of dollars to be used in, in a small area for, um, for conservation work. And, um, so yeah, that, the, the, the Kent County one, um, I'll just read off the sheet here just a little bit. It's, uh, it's a regional conservation partnership project, um, and it's specifically the Lower Grand River Watershed Habitat Restoration and Farmland Conservation Project. 
And so it's a partnership to provide private landowners with financial assistance to install conservation practices on their lands, improving soil health and water quality. Um, and so, you know, for instance, this is, uh, like for anybody listening out there, um, you know, if you're in the Rogue River or the Indian Mills Creek watersheds um, around the Grand Rapids area, then there's millions of dollars available to uh, work on forest stand improvement, um, filter strips, cover crops for farmers, grade stabilization, which would be, um, you know, working on some erosion in stream banks or river banks. Um, and then specifically, once you really break this down, this document down, you know, there's there's probably 45 different conservation practices that are eligible for financial assistance within Holy that. Cow. Yeah, it's just, it's it's really broad, and so it's um, prescribed burning, prescribed grazings, wetland restorations, strip cropping, stream habitat improvement and management, um, brush management, conservation crop rotation. I mean, that's just a few of all the diverse things that you can do under this um, specific regional uh, partnership project. But, uh, you know, so, like, you know, guys in New York or Iowa or Tennessee, um, you know, that's why getting a hold of your local conservation district is, you know, one of the best things to do because um, uh, there's so many times I've talked to clients that just that said, you know, I just never knew this stuff was available. And um, so, you know, make a couple phone calls, find out where the money's at, at and, um, you know, it can be a win-win. Yeah, I think you may have just answered multiple questions from the Facebook post that we put out earlier today. Um, yeah. I mean, like how to get professional help to implement prescribed fire or the timber stand improvement, you just kind of cover those. Um, and these are all by contacting your local conservation district. Now, are there is there a conservation district in every state, in every region of the state, every county? Yeah, there's typically um, in in every uh, if farming is being um, conducted, row crop farming, you'll have you know in that county um, you'll have the USDA office. Um, as you get into more northern Michigan, you know one office might cover three to five counties. Um, there just isn't as much. Um, Yep. The farm, you know, the farm service agency, you know, they deal mostly with farmers. Um, dealing with landowners that have conservation practices, you know, is it's it's not as high of a number as, as you know the farmers that they're they're working with. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, every state's going to have them, um, and then it's just going to be kind of regionally. Um, however, um, you know. One one office might, like I said, might cover four or five counties. But you'll um, that um, at the bottom of that page at the farmers.gov, um, you know, you can kind of please just a few clicks to find um, your local office. Perfect. Yep, and you did mention that earlier. That's great. All right, let's hit another question from Facebook, Chad. It looks like. Uh, Zach asked about invasive species control. 
what can you recommend on how to control it, how to find out more information about those species in your state, whichever state you're in? Yeah, sure. Good question, Zach. And, uh, uh, yeah, Zach's, uh, funny enough, Zach's a, a good friend of mine. Um, and, uh, again, uh, another benefit of being involved in some of these, uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, you know, like Pheasants Forever and the QDMA and stuff, you, you run into like-minded individuals all over the country and you end up, you know, creating some pretty good friendships with them. And, uh, Zach's one of those guys. So. Oh, that's awesome. Hey, Zach. Uh, um, yeah, you know, invasive species can is so regionally uh, diverse. And um, so, you know, getting specific help, you know, again, I'm going to direct you to, um, you know, different organizations and, and websites. Um, this uh, quick one I'm going to talk about here is um, we, we've talked about some uh, natural resource conservation service program technicians. Um, we haven't talked about any of the farm bill biologists. Uh, these farm bill biologists are great resources. I use them a lot to discuss different habitat projects or concerns. Um, and so uh, where I'm going to direct people is to pheasantsforever.org, uh, pheasantsforever.org. Um, if you click on the habitat tab in the top, um, and once you get to that page, you're going to get uh, a bunch of uh, bullet points along the left-hand side. But uh, one of them is the Farm Bill priorities. And so I'm just going to read real quickly from here. Um, uh, these, you know, state by state, you're going to have different Farm Bill biologists. And the, Iowa is going to have many more farm bill biologists than Michigan does, for example. But um, you'll be able to find those people that we'll link again to the show notes. But uh, just for example, here on the Pheasants Forever website, I'm going to read, it says, our nationwide farm bill biologist program is supported through diverse partnerships with the USDA, the NRCS, Farm Service Agency, State wild agency, state wildlife agencies, and others. The program provides a boots on the ground delivery system which collaborates with local farmers, ranchers, and landowners to educate and assist with enrollment in various voluntary incentive based conservation programs. And so again, it's, it's, um, getting to the right person that can help you with your problem. And a lot of times it, you know, you could make one phone call and get to the right person and you won't, you might have to make five phone calls. But, um, I would highly recommend, um, contacting a farm bill biologist. Um, again, we'll, we'll link it here, but, um, they can help you out, um, with getting information on invasive species for your, uh, region of the country or even your more localized, you know, by county. Um, like where Zach's at in eastern Ohio. Um, these uh, farm bill biologists are, are a great resource, and I highly recommend um, using them. And then um, I think, uh, Jared, you've got some, got some uh, information on them too? Yeah. Now, would you recommend – I mean, we have a bunch of questions here, and I'm trying to, to – I mean, we can go in so many different directions, but – would you refer to 
a farm bill biologist for many of the questions listed on here in, in terms yes. of the different topics that were brought up. And if yes. so, I have, uh, I found on the Pheasants Forever website a list of farm bill biologists. I believe there's maybe 75 of them on here, all different states. Um, yeah, that sounds oh, about right. Ohio lists nine different email addresses and phone numbers, so you can just reach right out to them, uh, Zach or, or whomever else. Now, but you're saying that some of the other questions on here, a farm bill biologist could help direct information. Is that correct? Yeah, just like, you know, for most of the podcast, we've been directing people to this uh, farmers.gov site where, yep. you know, you can find your local NRCS office. Um, and then talking with, uh, you know, somebody there is going to get you uh, hopefully whittled down to a conservation program that meets your needs. Um, also contacting um, one of these farm bill biologists right from the start um, would hopefully you know, get you to, uh, you know, the same end result. They're, they're going to have uh, the same knowledge, if not more knowledge, about programs um, you know, in, in your region. So, yeah, it seems um, very localized. Yes. Yeah, because, again, there can be different grants for um, the Saginaw Bay watershed um, versus, you know, the Rogue River watershed in Michigan. And um, so your local um, farm bill biologists, you know, could be up to speed on, on, on some you know, things that uh, hopefully they can educate you on. No, that, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, we've we've covered a lot in the last, oh, I don't know, hour and a half. But if, if anything is unclear, first of all, you can reach out to me at the podcast or Chad. It, I mean, we'll be happy to help direct you in any way we can. If not, you can reach out to your local FSA or NRCS office, and even further, the farm bill biologists in your region. I mean, is there any is there any part of that that we didn't cover in case there's some questions unanswered, or is that a pretty good way to get your questions answered? Yeah, no, I think uh, yeah, between the show notes, um, myself, and uh, yeah, the uh, USDA offices and farm bill biologist contacts. Um, Perfect. Yep. No, that's great. So thank you guys for those questions. Uh, Chad, I want to move along to, I want to say it right, the Early Successional Habitat Competition. Can we cover that next? Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Now, go ahead and, and explain what that is. Hopefully, I didn't butcher the name of it, um, but it's, it's pretty darn cool, and I'd like to hear about it. Yeah, sure. So, um, um you had uh, 75% of the name right. Uh, I'm calling it at this point the, <laughs> er, <laughs> the Early Successional Habitat Challenge. Challenge. Got yep. It. And um, for those of you that know Dr. Craig Harper, um, he's a, uh, just a wealth of knowledge in the habitat world and food plot world and um, herbicide and, and seeds uh, food plot mixes and, and early successional habitat and um, you know I've been 
talking and working with him for the last, um, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half now with some different things that we've done uh, with QDMA, with um, <clears throat> Habitat Days and um, educational events. Um, and this, you know, we, we talk a lot about uh, food plots and we talk a lot about um, hinge cutting and, and, and native warm season grasses. and The sexy things, uh, you know. There you go. Yep. And, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff <clears throat> takes equipment. Farm equipment, habitat equipment, takes money, and um, and Craig's got a couple books out um, that I either have in my truck with me all the time, or they're on my desk. And um, you know, sharing a, a few campfires uh, with Craig, I've just really come to um, appreciate his knowledge uh, for basically all things um, habitat and. When I purchased his book, um, you know, this one's called Managing Early Successional Plant Communities for Wildlife in the Eastern United States. Um, I, it really got me thinking about all the effort and the time that I see people spending on social media, you know, discussing, you know, what's the best food plot mix? What should I plant you know, I've got a little opening in my woods. What should I plant that gets very little sunlight? And, um, you know, there's so much discussion and effort that goes on in talking about planting things when a lot of what you could do to benefit wildlife is already in the seed bank and, you know, it's, it's there in the soil. Um, so sometimes just doing nothing, um, could, could turn out to be a heck of a good food plot. And I mean by nothing, just letting Mother Nature take its course. Um, so I've started um, some of my own property. Um, I've started just letting go. Uh, you, you're still, you know, let it go doesn't mean you just walk away. There's still some management to do. Um, we, in an early successional plant community, you you want to you want to increase the amount of forbs and browse that are there, and so you don't want it an area dominated by grasses, which suppress a lot of um, uh, forage there for wildlife. And so um, I've decided to create this uh, early successional habitat challenge to try and get some focus on um, creating. Areas of just that early successional habitat. Um, you know, and what that is basically is it's letting the land go um, and, and trying to eliminate grasses and, and let the forbs and, and brush and woody vegetation browse thrive. Um, so for this challenge, um, what I'm requiring, uh, it's, it's still in the works. We haven't solidified a lot of things. Um, and I are going to be working on this together, and then um, hopefully the QDMA is going to um, be a resource for us for providing um, registration and um, educational materials for people to, to learn how to create this. Uh, I'm just going to call it ESH now for you know ease of saying it, but early successional habitat ESH. So. 
Um, we're, I'm going to require people that want to enter into this challenge. Um, we're going to have a Facebook page. You'll, ha- you'll have to get on this Facebook page, become a, a member, follower, whatever. Um, you're going to need to own or have access to uh, Craig's book, the one I referenced, The Managing Early Successional Plant Communities for the Wildlife in the Eastern U.S. And that's going to be there's not going to be a whole lot of direction other than that book. You take that book and you do what you feel is best based on the information in that book. Um, So a few requirements of being in the challenge, um, there'll be a small registration fee and I'll, I'll get to that, the reason for that here shortly. Um, But you'll need to to manage at least one acre um, in creating ESH. Um, we're going to do this for probably two to three years uh, because it's, you know, it can take, you can see a lot of results just in one year, you know, by managing a little piece of ground um, in ESH. But, uh, you know, to see some, some woody vegetation and woody brows and some of the other briars and brambles and things, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time. So we're going to do this. I'd like to see it run three years, but I don't I'm not sure if that'll be quite um, doable for a contest like this, um, but uh, you know, to to get in, then you're going to have to have, like I said, Craig's book. Um, we're we're talking about um, uh, requiring you to be a member of the QDMA to do this, and then also. Um, um, you know, be a, a, a member with a, a small, um, probably twenty or twenty-five dollar um, registration fee. So, um, you know, what you'd have to do to get involved is um, you'd have to, within that Facebook page, um, you have to submit a, a Google Earth image of uh, you know a before picture of the area that you're going to manage. Um, you're going to have to submit a plan. Um, and so I, you know, recommend that you read through Craig's book. Um, you can write yourself a, a little uh, plan on what you'd want to do in years one, two, and three. And then you're just going to, well, document your results. Um, that with pictures, um, you know, and field notes. Um, and you're actually going to create a, a, a file there that then you'll then submit um, to me. And then we'll have a panel. Um, of some um, probably three to five people, um, you know, professionals um, like a Dr. Harper, um, Matt Ross from the QDMA possibly, uh, Kip Adams from QDMA possibly. Um, there's some other uh, private uh, professionals that I'm going to reach out to and, and see if they want to be on this panel to help judge some of this. Um some you know some guys maybe from Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, Illinois and Iowa um, to get involved. That's what I'd kind of like to see is the Great Lakes area a little bit expanded is kind of the the region that I'd like to use. Um, so you're gonna have to submit um, you know your plan, like I said, and then um, um, descriptions of what your treatments were. You know what what you use to enhance and, and create your ESH. Um, and then, 
you know, either after two or three years, we'll uh, we'll start judging these, and then we're going to have um, we'll have a lot of prizes, and then uh, the the grand prize would be a, a one day uh, habitat consultation um, by Dr. Harper, you know, on a property that uh, you choose. Um, wow. So yeah, that should be exciting. Um, you know, Craig's just a lot of fun to spend time with period but then when you start talking about habitat <laughs> um it gets you know you better have your pen and notepad ready because these are <laughs> wealth of information uh no i i've listened to him before on other shows and i'd love to get him on here someday um but your your challenge is pretty cool what is the goal of this challenge for for the listeners out there um just to bring exposure um, to, you know, what guys can create um, with very little money. I mean, I, I, I literally think you can do this um, with maybe just a backpack sprayer. So, for, you know, a guy, for a, a high-level um, view of this, you know, you're really trying to eliminate grass and get the forbs broadleafs, woody brows, woody vegetation um, to grow and flourish. And, and, uh, and then once you get that going, you're going to then really kind of focus on um, managing individual species that are preferred brows by wildlife and you know, preferred forage for wildlife. And so um, you know, it's going to be an evolving situation and, say, field based on kind of where you're at regionally, what kind of soil moisture you get, what kind of heat you get. Um, you know, there'll be climate will be involved with what you're going to grow. Um, and then just gaining a knowledge of what's in the soil bank. Um, you know, that top two inches where all these seeds are just laying waiting for an opportunity to germinate and grow. Um, just give people an, an education on what's there and, you know, what wildlife is browsing on what. And, um, you know, so there really, there isn't a, uh, there's no financial incentive in it for me or um, I'm not looking to gain anything from it other than just trying to help uh, people, you know, maybe look at a little different piece of a puzzle of, uh, you know, managing for wildlife. I think it, I think it's an awesome challenge. I I know I could learn more on the early successional habitat, what's in my seed bank, what the deer prefer, um, and for for the listeners and myself on here. I mean, like you said, you're talking relatively cheap with very little equipment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a win-win, really. Um, I think it's an easy thing to get into. There's, you know, a little barrier to entry, and then you're learning the whole time, and, and your wildlife is benefiting, too. It's a pretty cool challenge, Chad. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I hope, you know, people can, um, you know, jump on board. You know, at, at the most, if you came into this um, with no book and had no – you weren't already a QDMA member, um, you know, this might cost you 100 bucks. Uh, you know, a 25 – uh, for a book, uh, 
25 or 30 for a membership and, you know, maybe 25 or 30 bucks for a registration just to get into the vent, um, you know, to help pay for, um, you know, some administrative costs and, and, you know, then the, uh, paying for Craig to, you know, get to a, a field a site and, and do a consultation. Um, that's really where the money would be wrapped up in. So, yeah, it's, it's just all about education and, uh, and having fun. You know, it's, I want it to be a laid back event and, um, have fun with it. And, you know, again, that's why I really want to just, I'm not going to have a lot of stipulations on it. Like you need to have 15 different species of raw leaves and forbs in that one acre. And, you know, it can't be dominated by any more than 10% grasses. Um, that's not going to be this program. It's going to be, okay, you take Craig's book. Uh, I got it in my hand here. It's, you know, oh, 100 pages. Um, and you just, you do what you want with that one acre or 10 acres. You know, like I said, you got to, I want you to have at least one acre. And then from there, you can have as much as you want. But I want people to learn from the book, uh, kind of learn on their own. And that's why it'll be kind of a multi-year uh, event. And then, you know, how you, uh, you know, show your results and um, describing the treatments that you've, that you've taken, you know, to get those results. Um, so how you submit your, you know, your plan and your results is going to be, you know, part of the scoring system, uh, too, and, and guys that can be creative and have fun with this. And, um, yeah, just uh, something to try out and see what we can do. No, I like it. And you're you're promoting early successional habitat, so there's nothing wrong with that. Um, we'll be happy to, to help promote that here at the podcast, Chad, so can't wait to get that rolling. I already have some some areas I think I'm going to designate towards that. So that's pretty neat. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we'd love to come, you know, come back on the show and discuss it more, you know, as we get further along with it and maybe provide some, um, some updates, you know, throughout the year as how yep. things are going and, and stuff like that. And maybe um, spotlight a couple guys that are, um, you know, maybe doing well and, um, and, you know, there's no reason we can't all learn. Yeah, that's the whole point of what we're doing here, isn't it? I love it. Right on, right on. Yes, sir. Now, I have a page full of notes here. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to cover tonight before we learn about how somebody can get a hold of you, uh, etc.? Is there anything else you want to get to before that? No, I think we've covered plenty uh, <laughs> okay. for now. <laughs> okay, well, there's always next time. So, um, there you go. Let's wrap this up, Chad. Uh, I want to hear about how anybody who wants to reach out, who has more questions, who maybe needs to take that first step in terms of a, a state or federal program. Um, you know, what what should they do? Where are you at? Yeah, so easiest, like I guess everybody else, is, um, you know, email, um, cell phone, um you know, I won't rattle off my cell phone now. You can have it in the show notes because people won't catch it, as well as the email. Um, you can find them on the show notes if that's okay. Sure. Um, doing it that way. But, yes, um, you know, I, I really enjoy helping people um, 
get to their uh, habitat conservation goals, you know, whether it be deer, pheasant, turkey, um, they can reach out to my uh, email at, you know, cthalen8 at hotmail.com. Again, we'll have that posted, but uh, cthalen8 at hotmail.com. My, um, my website is pretty much solely devoted to uh, real estate, um, you know, at stonycreekoutdoors.com. Um, again, that's that's pretty much devoted to all my real estate listings in Michigan. You know, I'm a licensed realtor here in Michigan, uh, focusing on hunting and farmland sales. Um, you know, I get a I get a unique perspective um, when looking at land. Um, you know, helping people uh, evaluate soil types, um, soil qualities. Uh, you know, for growing row crops. Uh, you know, timber timber values, um, opportunities to, uh, you know, enhance a piece of property. If, if, if a potential client was interested in buying a piece of ground, you know, we can, we can look at it to see, you know, is there room for improvement? Can you, can you grow some big bucks on it? Can you hold some, um, you know, a couple families of pheasants? And, um, so yeah, I, I have a unique perspective on, um, you know, being able to help people find, you know, hunting, uh, hunting and farmland. If you're out there looking for that sort of thing, um, you know, you can contact me through the website too as well. Uh, I'd love to help people out. Great. And uh, I want to thank you once again for coming on, Chad. I really appreciate your time. We covered a ton here. Um, and I know you are in it to help people and and you know for the future of our our habitat and wildlife i i do know that and i appreciate that so thanks for coming on man and i'm sure we'll have you on again especially for this competition or the challenge coming up i should say i already know a few people who would definitely be in it too thank you again chad for coming on the podcast and thank you most importantly to all the listeners out there who keep coming back every week to listen to us at the habitat podcast if you haven't been here before, all of our episodes are online at multiple different places. Habitatpodcast.com is the website. You can also go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, wherever you guys can get a podcast. We should be streaming there. If not, please let me know. I'd love to thank everybody who gives us a great review on iTunes recently. I'm sending out more details this week to people who gave me a great review. Eric on there, awesome review, man. Thank you so much for that. I encourage everybody to go on there and then just let me know you left one. I'll get you a free decal in the mail. I love it, guys. Thank you so much. Now, I do want to thank our sponsors. They make this show possible. The Packer Max line of Colter Packers. I will be picking up a couple of them and bringing them to some friends of mine at the ATA. We're able to sell a couple Packers for Lincoln and get them in some good hands of some Habitat guys, some fellow deer hunters. Also, Nick Nation at the Habitat Hook. Nick is pumping out hooks right now, guys. It is hinge cutting season, and he is literally powder coating every week. So we have multiple SKUs available there, guys. Check them out. Nick Nation, nationscreations.net with the Habitat Hook. Lastly, Killer Food Plots, our friend Nick Percy. We're going to be meeting him down at the ATA show uh, two days from now. We're recording this podcast. So two days from now, we're going to be sitting down with Nick. 
We're going to go over some of the new products he has coming out this year, 2019. Check him out for high-quality food plot seed. His carnage brassica mix is killer. Uh, I did it with a no-till this year, and it came in excellent. Anywho, guys, thank you so much for coming on and listening. Thanks for hitting that subscribe button. Thanks for hitting the play button every single week. We really appreciate it. We're here to learn and become better habitat managers. Have a good week, and we'll talk to you guys soon.